James Bond may have met his match in Octopussy and entrancing beauty evolved in a devastating military plot to destroy Detente. From the palaces of India to a speeding circus train in Germany and a mid-air battle on a wing of a high-flying jet, only Agent 007 can stop this nightmarish scheme. Making its premiere in London and opening in the UK on the 6th of June 1983 and across the USA a few days later on the 10th, Octopussy is the 13th James Bond film and cost $27.5 million to make, bringing in $183.7 million at the worldwide box office. Starring Roger Moore, directed by John Glenn, the vital statistics are... Conquest 2, Martini 0, Kills 14, Bond, James Bonds 1. Back in 1983, Variety said, The film's high points are the spectacular aerial stunt work marking both the pre-credits teaser and the extremely dangerous-looking climax. So, to discuss Up to Pussy this week, I'm delighted to be joined by Bill Koenig, Calvin Dyson, and Joe Darlington. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hello, I'm Bill Koenig with the uh, Spy Command blog. Hi, I'm Calvin Dyson, and I have a YouTube channel where I talk about all things Bond-related. Hello, this is Joe Darlington, Being James Bond. You can find us on wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Excellent. So we're going to kick off with the one with. This is the motif you could hang your hat on for this film. If you close your eyes, what's the first thing you see or hear in your mind when you think about Octopussy? How would you describe this film to a casual moviegoer? Octopussy's the one with. The one with the competition. The competition, yeah. of course, mm. being Never Say Never Again with Sean Connery. And that competition had an enormous effect on this film, starting with, I think, the casting of Bond, because I'm not sure right. Roger Moore would have been brought back had it not been for Never Say Never Again. The, uh, and the Connery film also affected the marketing, because one of the early uh, trailers, uh, the announcer says, from the makers of the great James Bond films. And just in case you didn't get it, they showed the titles of the first 12 movies. And it also had an effect on the score. John Barry was back. This time he's using the James Bond theme a lot more than he usually did, which might've been some interesting conflicts with him and Monty Norman. But uh, mm. yeah, it, it, I think, uh, I, yes. So all of that, I think, had a big impact on this film. It's funny you mention that because James Brolin came out last week and said that he was given the job by Cubby Broccoli only to have it taken away from him at the last minute. Right, um, right. Under those kind of studio pressures, right? I think it's sure. probably U UA pushing them, right, to um, get yes. their man to go up against Connery. Yeah. Um, Bill, can you remember back in uh, release time, like, because it's hard to, for us hardcore fans to probably imagine not knowing the difference between the two. Um, but what do you think the public um level of um consciousness was about the fact that never said never again was the rogue one and octopussy was quote unquote the real one here in the u.s there was there was quite a bit because uh the abc television network has a still does a tv news magazine called 2020 and they did this big sean connery story and about you know the movie he did with the python guys and and then at the tail end, and now he's coming back as James Bond. And um, the Today Show, which was on NBC, the morning show, they had a week-long series about the two movies going head-to-head. -head. So here in the U.S., there was, there was a lot of consciousness about this. Yeah, but did the, do you think the average cinema goer knew the difference? Um, um, you know what? Prop, the average one, probably not. The, the, the fans knew it. Um, I've mentioned this before that, you know, there, there used to be this U S James Bond fan club and they threw in their lot with Connery. 
but I think the general fans, they knew there were two and they weren't exactly sure who was doing what. They just knew Roger Moore and Sean Connery were both doing one at the same time. So, yeah, Mm. they were interested, but uh, probably not the average fan, I suspect. Calvin or Joe, what would you like to throw in? Um, I'm going to say a lot of really nice things about this film because I really do love it. But uh, the first thing that came to mind when thinking of answering this question was that this is the one with the most borderline incomprehensible plot of the uh, the series. Uh, I, all the stuff with eggs and missiles and characters' motivations, what do they know, what don't they know, it's very complicated, I think. You can gist it as you go through it, which I think is all well and good if you you know it's it's a fun adventure film at the end of the day but if you're really paying attention to what's the fake egg what's the real egg who knows what the fake or real eggs are it can be a bit uh complicated i think i think that's borne out in the um official dvd um description of the plot when it makes it out that octopus is behind all this Ah, yeah. Well, there's that's no, in- there's, there's no mention of the Russians. <laughs> I, well, I find that interesting. The the idea that she is even if you're coming to this film for a first time, that she could you could be thinking, oh, maybe she is the villain. Kamal Khan's seen reporting to her in uh, a couple of scenes, and yeah, you know, I, I find that interesting. Um, obviously, these days we all know that she, you know, she's Maud Adams, she's the Bond girl, but she's she's not going to be the villain. But I like right. that they play with that ambiguity of her. Yeah, her, her opening plays into that too, with her sprinkling the fish food into the tank, right? Uh, mm. You know, a la Blofeld, right? Um, yes, yes. Very much the love, but that's just another eon attempt to wrong foot the audience, I guess. Mm. Also, it, it took me like two or three showings to figure out what was the real egg and which was the fake egg. <laughs> 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 Joe, um, believe it or not, you know this is a tricky, tricky one for me because I sort of feel like this is a film that kind of checks off all the classic James Bond check marks pretty admirably. Um, I think the overall film is great, which we'll talk about. I wonder if there's a whole lot that really stands out to me as being very exceptional. So I'm, I'm gonna go with sort of a weird one. It's the one where James Bond dresses up like a clown. Yeah. And that kind of it, it sounds like 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 somebody who would say that is is you know throwing darts at the film. You know like like somebody who doesn't really is not a big fan they'll go, "Oh, that's the one where he But it but that is a moment that does stand out to a lot of people. Um casual fans like I kind of feel like whenever you're looking at like Bond rankings on some rando movie site, um they always throw octopus at the bottom and they always say, oh, that's the one where Bond dressed up like a clown. Um, but even fans kind of always talk about that and, you know, plus or minus whether they liked it or don't like it. Uh, so, yeah, that that and it, and it does kind of stick out for me as a you know pretty substantial moment in the film. So I'll go with that one. I had the one with the clown suit. So we're on the same <laughs> page. <you> <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's also got. Uh, it's got history with this podcast, right, Bill? Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> the, famous, okay. the famous quiz episode. We'll leave it yes. at that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, moving on to the Bond cocktail, you mentioned this, Joe, that a lot of these points are hit by this film. Um, tabloids and ITV specials tend to break these things down into these categories. I'm going to say teaser titles, plot, women, villains, allies, Bond, action, locations, dialogue, and catch-all style. 
Is there an element of this Bond cocktail that you find particularly unique to this film and why? And it could be a positive or a negative. Who wants to throw the first cocktail ingredient in? Where does the uh, performance of the lead figure into those choices? Bond. Bond. Okay, um, I'll go with Bond and I'll go with Roger Moore because when he came aboard, obviously things were rather chaotic. And But to me, Roger Moore gives off this kind of, I know exactly what I'm doing vibe, which, you know, he, he was never the type to admit it, but he had to be under a lot of pressure. Uh, although, you know, he's in his mid fifties, maybe figures out what, what the heck, but, uh, I'll stand on that answer. For me, it would have to be locations. I think, I think this is one of the best, Mm. uh, uh, assortment of locations that we have in the whole series, and I think particularly of these John Glenn Roger Moore ones, like Fury Only is very European based, and A View to a Kill is very America, like obviously a lot of it's in San Francisco. Um, this one has a more kind of timeless feel to it, I think, and I think a part of that is the locations, like India in particular, um, it is just such a fantastic location it's uh it really leans into the adventure feel that this one has um and i think it's all really beautifully photographed like you have all of your postcard shots of you know the taj mahal and whatnot but i think like some of the side streets that they go back into and it's uh some of the jungle locations i i think it's really um i think it's really top tier stuff well also behind the scenes with particularly with the indian sequences um a lot of studios had money they had invested in India and they couldn't get the money out. That's right. And so Michael G. Wilson was assigned the task of approaching those studios mm. of basically buying out their Indian funds at a discount, you know, because that way the studios, you know, could get some money out of it. Mm. Whereupon, you know, Eon would have, you know, funds to finance, you know, the India shoot. And uh, I'm, that, that's just kind of interesting behind the scenes stuff. Um, yeah. about how they executed it. Yeah, they really stretched the budget, um, which is interesting because Octopus had a lower budget than Never Sin Ever Again hmm. in in dollar terms. But as you say, Bill, they got pennies on the dollar for the cash that the other studios had sitting in country. Hmm. Um, the other thing that's interesting about India was they were trying, I mean, Eon's been trying to go back to India and the pre-titles of Skyfall was originally based in India. And that oh, got that's s- right. They had to switch got- to Turkey instead. Yeah because they found that the Indian railroad system has 20 levels of government. Um, (laughs) Worse than trying to film in Italy. Um, So I think we probably see maybe India return as a location, maybe in the next couple of films, Mm. whenever Mm. whenever that happens. We're overdue, I think, Mm. a return. Uh, I'll jump in with uh, the women. I think the women in this film really stand out. I think... From from my money, there's three Bond women in this film. Um, the one from the pre-titles, which I think is spectacular. Not only is she absolutely positively stunning, but I kind of just enjoy that pre-title sequence as being, you know, one of the few that's very self-contained. It's a very self-contained adventure that sort of has a beginning, middle, and an end. You know, really doesn't segue over to the main film, so it's sort of got its own Bond girl, really, in that little segment. Um, I think Magda... Christina Wayborn is spectacular. I love it because it's old school espionage. Mm. I feel like she's kind of, um, you know, what Miss Tarot was to to Bond, mm. to Connery's Bond and Dr. No. I feel like that's the same game being played here. 
uh, where they're both kind of playing each other. And, and we as the audience are just kind of captivated by that, trying to see who's going to secretly one up the other. Um, and then, of course, you have Octopussy, who I think is uh, I, I, I feel like if if every Bond actor has that one leading lady who you could see him going off into the sunset with, that would definitely be Octopussy. Mm-hmm. Um, I always sort of make the comment that that Roger Moore and Maude Adams are very similar in age. So it looks pretty convincing. And a lot of people like to correct me and say, no, 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 she, she's still way younger than, than, than him. Um, uh, and, and she is, but it's not nearly as noticeable as it is in, you know, with other actresses. Um, so I think it works. I think it works very well. Uh, she just seems very smart, you know, very capable, can carry herself well. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I think the, the bond gals in this one are just firing on all cylinders she has a real maturity to her doesn't she like because i I do that same thing where i'm like oh she's you know more age appropriate than certainly you know if your eyes only a view to a kill but then i think she is still like you know james do you know how old she was in this film i'm guessing like she's probably like in her early 30s or something it's probably not well actually i I want to say 38 maybe oh right okay Uh, Mm. i mean later 30s but i mean still not 40 yeah yeah, mm. I guess it's she still was, a fair bit younger than Roger. Yeah, according to Google, she was 38, but Maud Adams oh. has one of those wonky records of birth dates where it's oh. off by like five years, depending on who you read. Oh, um, interesting. Oh, but okay. no bigger age different than the one you first mentioned, Joe, Bianca in the uh, opening sequence, <laughs> who was 16. No, is that right? Oh, wow. She wasn't legally, uh, allowed, to right. drive. She wasn't legally right. allowed to wow. drive on public roads, so they had to teach her how to drive on the, on the airstrip. I, oh, that's I did not know that until I helped out MI6 Confidential with a special octopusy <laughs> issue. And I said, what? Wow. 16 or 17. You know, she was not of legal age. No, which, she was which, which, Once you have that piece of knowledge in your head, you can't quite view the film quite the same way ever again. <laughs> yeah. See you in Miami. Uh... <laughs> that line in particular. Wow. <laughs> like, wow. Hmm. Is she allowed to board the plane by herself? I did not know that. Different times. Different Mm. times. But um, (laughs) to your point, I think Maud Adams has played the role older too. Um, Whereas in a lot of the other movies, they've obviously tried to um, emphasize the youth of the actresses, right, for marketing. Well, and and her character runs a company and and runs an apparently far flung company with lots of different. I mean, it's a circus, it's got jewelry it's got all this other stuff so i mean she's you know she just didn't just fall off the train she's been at this for a while can you remember any kind of um fuss about the fact that they were effectively recasting her for this film given that she was in golden gun um i do remember just a little bit of fuss in the sense that you know a bond girl coming back for a second major role uh of course there had been others who had minor roles Nadja Regan, for example, is in both Russia with Love and Goldfinger, but those are both small roles. But no, this, the, yeah, there was a little bit of a fuss. I wouldn't call it a big fuss, but it was definitely noted. I should also point out that um, Sybil Danning was uh, considered for this, right, Bill? And was yeah. Sybil Shepherd because, mm. I mean, both, both Sybil Danning had kind of uh, campaigned for the role. Sybil Shepherd had had a breakfast meeting with Cubby Broccoli and John Glenn, and John Glenn described it, and 
broccoli. Then when they were done, uh, Glenn talked to broccoli and Cubby thought that uh, Sybil Shepherd was too old, except she was apparently younger than. She was 33. Yeah. So but I could definitely see Sybil Danning in that role and Sybil Shepherd, not so much, but I think Sybil Danning, even though I think, Probably at that time she was, I don't know if it's really completely fair, but she was kind of a scream queen. Yeah. She was in a lot of the 80s kind of action-y movies. There, but, there uh, was a magazine in the U.S. called Media Scene, and she was on the cover of Media Scene, Sybil Danning was. And she was like in a wet suit holding a pistol, and she was all wet. And there was this lengthy article that made it sound like she was a cinch for the role, and then, of course, nothing happened of it. So I... Looking back, I kind of assumed she was campaigning for the part, but, you know, who knows? Well, the other one was Barbara Carrera, who turned Eon down and said, I'm going to go and work with the real James Bond instead. Mm. Right. right. (laughs) Way to ingratiate yourself. (laughs) All righty. Okay, so uh, this is a good film to do this next topic on, which is underappreciated element. Um. What thing, big or very small, would you like to bring to people's attention the next time they watch Octopussy? Well, I'd like to go, and this is fairly well known, but I, I still think it's worth a mention, and that is stuntman Martin Grace, who was doubling Roger Moore in the train mm-hmm. sequence and was horrifically injured and was lucky he didn't get killed because um, he, he's hanging on the train, and it was just really just through his strength that he was able to hang on after suffering that awful injury and arthur wooster was the second unit director and he was also you know photographing the sequence and apparently he was really really shook up and again it's just a reminder of of how in those days everything's done for real and it's not necessarily the star but you know the the hard-working stunt crew and Martin Grace was definitely one of them and, and was, yeah, he spent a long time in the hospital as a result. So I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. Mm. And that whole sequence was aped by Pierce Brosnan a couple of years later for that Diet Coke commercial. Yes. Ah. With, yes. A, with a very similar train on the exact same stretcher of train track <laughs> filmed <laughs> by the same cinematographer. Yeah. Cause if I remember right, what happened was they went to a, part of the tracks where they hadn't done as much practice or something like that. So anyway, it was, again, it was an awful thing to happen, but you know, he survived and, and it was also stated in the making of featurette that uh, Roger Mm. Moore came by often to the hospital and this caused quite a stir in the hospital when, you know, Roger (laughs) Moore kept coming by with the, you know, the hospital staff. Calvin Joe. Um, I, I think I'll go with the villains for this one, actually. Uh, I think that Kamal Khan and General Olov are a couple of the most underrated uh, villains in the whole series, to be honest. I suppose a big part of that is that they don't have the, you know, the scar or the teeth or the, mm. you know, they're not Goldfinger. Maybe they're just not bombastic. Well, actually, no, General Olov is certainly bombastic enough. <laughs> but uh, Follow I, yeah. that 
Oh, I love that bit. Oh, I, I love Stephen Burkov in everything. He's he's just a crazy, crazy actor. But um, I think both him and Louis Jordan complement each other so nicely in a way that I don't think the only other film that's in this series that is kind of like this, where there's kind of two main villains that I can think of, is um, uh, Living Daylights which I don't think mm. works as well. And I don't think those mm. villains play off each other very well, but here they do. I think they only really have one scene together, um, but just the different energy that they both bring to the thing, um, I, I think is really good and full of variety. Um, and I think they're just both really excellent performances, really. We're lucky to have two great Bond villains in this one. I, I think Calvin, you, you sort of nailed it, but when they do it in the living daylights, they, they, it doesn't work so well, and they kind of come out, come off as this like kind of weird trio mm. because they they particularly because they do have that really awkward scene where the three of them are together, and it kind of makes it look. There's, I guess there's a couple scenes where they're all together, making it seem like they're all really in cahoots. Whereas in he in Octopussy, they feel like business partners. Mm. So so mm. just having the one conversation between them, I think, works really well. So it, it kind of like. You know, Bond is in the right place at the right time. So he he spots them together. Oh, they are working together. Mm. Um, but once that happens, each is sort of doing his own thing. I mean, actually, I'm not. That's not quite true. They're together again on the train later. I, I guess. Oh yes, of um, course. Yeah, forgot about but, that. Uh, but right. But it, it it does feel more like business partners. We're, we're you know we we have mutual interests, so we will you know <laughs> yeah. work when our interests align. But we're they're kind of off doing separate things. Yeah, they've both got very different motivations too, right? I mean, mm, yeah. Um, Kamal Khan just wants to get rich, and obviously Olaf wants to see the West invaded. Um, but it's the same kind of means to different ends. That makes sense. Mm, yeah. Whereas mm, when yeah. you live in daylights, they're all kind of like, "What's the real? What they're just trying to sell some drugs and get some money." Mm. And of- I think that, and I think that speaks to the strength of the the story and the screenplay because they do have very specific understandable motivations mm. you know mm. they're, they're not both just you know doing the same thing for the same means right. etc yeah right all right joe what would you like to throw in for underappreciated um kind of springing off what i was just talking about i i i want to talk about the plot and i think that you know calvin you said it earlier and i i couldn't agree more is that it <laughs> it, it does kind of read as being sort of complicated and i remember when i was much younger and again um, one of my first Bond films that I ever got really excited about when I was younger, uh, probably not knowing at all what the heck is happening. Just, yeah. just, just, just <laughs> did not know what was going on, but just sort of intrigued by all of it. Um, as time goes on and I, and I, you know, keep rewatching the film and I start, Oh, Oh, I see what's happening now. And this, this guy's doing this and that guy's doing that. Um, one of the things I really love about this plot and they try to do it again in, uh, of you to a kill, but I don't think it works as well. But I love how they very smartly start off with a story that that to me seems very Bondish, meaning it's about the priceless Fabergé egg, and Bond finds himself in Sotheby's doing that great scene from the short story. Uh, and and again, I love how you know it, it's one of those really under under understood. Bond tropes where Bond is doing battle in, in in a in a in a different situation than normal. You know, Bond does battle across card tables on the golf course, etc. Mm. And here he's doing battle in the um 
in the auction house. And I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I love how it segues into the bigger plot, the bigger, mm. you know, you know, international intrigue, you know, big stakes plot. Um, and again, they kind of replay that idea mm. in a view to a kill where they start off with the horse races. It's all about the, you know, people dressing up nice, going to the horse races, et cetera. And, you know, going to France to, to see Zorin's um, horse stables. Then we segue over to his real plot. I think it's a little more clumsy in the view to a kill. Yeah. Here, I think it segues almost perfectly. I think the only tenuous way they've linked them in a view to kill is the uh, Bob, the oil guy, right? Who's at the at the horse show. He's like, I am not here Basically, for horses. Yeah. The oil guy. That's the only link between the plot, you know, the subplot. Mm-hmm. Right. It almost seems plot. like otherwise we just we there's we just, just wasted uh, an hour. We just <laughs> jump cut over to a blimp over right. you know San Francisco and now we're moving on to a different plot. Right. Yeah, I, I yeah, right. But here here I, I feel like it's really interwoven very nicely. Yeah. And the whole like did they smash the real Romanov star and all, all and all the rest of it? Right, like right, that, right. that jewelry thing. I mean, from the very pre-title sequence, right? All the way through to the end. Even when Kamal Khan's got his forged uh, banknote stuff, right? Mm. It's all about fake stuff. The whole plot is about fakery. Yes, um, very true. And 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 the other Asian dressed up as the clown kind of fits that motif very well. And and by the way, and you're reminding me of something I can't believe I forgot to mention. I I love how this is one of the few Bond stories where, as the audience, we have no idea what's going on. And that that whole scene with with the two twins chasing the clown through the woods, um, ending at the embassy with the egg. Again, we have no idea what this is all about. So by the end of the story, I mean, I kind of feel like in a lot of ways, I mean, this this is a much more classically written story than many of the Bond films, you know, like because Mm -hmm. basically as audience members, we have no idea up until Bond himself puts on the clown costume that we start to put together what what that was all about well mm. a couple a couple things one with the the twins there's a little bit of a fake out where you don't initially realize the audience doesn't initially yes. realize they're twins so then then you're like oh there's another guy looks just like that and then the other thing about the the art is that's basically a way for orloff to finance a kind of you know off the books operation yeah, because right. this is not mm. an official Soviet government operation. Right, so he's right. so he's filching all this stuff from the the art treasures of the Soviet Union to finance this uh, project, which uh, would get him into trouble. Uh, it's, right, and it it's very known. and it's very smart because again, a lot of stories we just take for granted that the bad guy just has really deep pockets, right. you know, and can can just make things happen. Right, yep. because they did give you one clue. It's a very minor clue. When Bond comes in, talks to Jim Fanning, and he explains about the egg and stuff, then Fanning's dismissed, and then Bond and uh, M are talking, and it says, you know, they might be using this for foreign payoffs, I think is the phrase. Yes. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that's your one clue that this is a tied to something bigger. Yeah, illegally gotten Russian gains. I mean, who, right. who would have knew? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and um, another bit of connective tissue with living daylights is obviously the um the jewelry inspector at the kremlin played by peter oh, I forgot his surname um is also oh, yes. the pipeline the pipeline inspector in yes. living daylights oh yeah. is that right i did i never caught that 
Yeah. I never called that. I only realized that like, it was literally a few months ago. I think someone tweeted about it and I was like, oh my God, it is. And it yeah. when you see it like next to each other, it's like, oh, of course it's the same. It looks any different, but I just never picked up on it before. This will blow somebody's mind, but one of the satellite technicians in Diamonds of Forever was also the computer guy in Russia in Goldeneye. Oh. oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, I think that's the longest one I found of between films. Huh. Of, uh, uh, very yeah. interesting. Oh, we're into trivia, so why don't we do that? Which is um, <laughs> segue. Perfect segue. There we go. Share a fact or tidbit about the film that you find particularly interesting. <laughs> uh, I can go first. I, I like the. Uh, this is a little detail, but the um, during the uh, the chase sequence on the um, taxis in India, <clears throat> the um, the cyclist that randomly mm. appears between the taxis and uh, just grabs on past. Apparently, that was a completely random incident. Just some local who was just strolling through the filming set, but kept it in the film. But it's just it's so well timed. It's so well filmed. I yeah. Oh, that's really funny. like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I I never heard that before. That's that's hysterical, and it's so well shot too. Right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he didn't sign a release form afterwards because you know? <laughs> <laughs> he kind of looks at one of the cameras. I think they do have like two cameras on the go at that point, and it does kind of explain why he's sort of looking straight down the lens for like a that fraction of a second. <laughs> but, uh, brilliant. That's great. Um, I'll I'll do one, and it's really kind of a cheat. Um. It's more personal trivia. It just happens to be the very first Bond film I ever saw in the movie theater. Oh. And, I, and again, that's a big old cheat. And I'm just, but I'm just very sentimental about this one. Um, oh, yeah, first one I ever saw in the theater. And honestly, uh, the the year after, which was sort of typical for you know cable television back in those days, it would just sort of play constantly on cable. It was always on. So and I would just watch it every time it played like it like it was one of those things. If, if I'm flipping around looking for something <laughs> and Octopussy's on, that's it. This is where we leave it. And I this is, is this is the one that just got me hooked. And I was <laughs> just a Bond fan ever since. Uh, I'll go with one. Um, this was the beginning of Barbara Broccoli's full time involvement with the franchise. Now, she had mm. earlier as a teenager had like written captions for publicity stills during the spy love me but in 1982 she graduated from college and this movie began filming in the later summer of 82 and this is her first uh on-screen credit it's in the end titles i think it's executive assistant or something like that one of her jobs was basically keeping an eye on the octopusy women making sure they got to where they needed to be <laughs> for filming. But uh, yeah, this was the beginning of her 40-year uh, run uh, on a full-time basis with the Bond franchise. Mm. Uh, i got two quick ones. One is, this is the first time we've got full nudity of a Bond girl in a Bond movie. When um, oh, yeah. Maud Adams is swimming across the pool. Is that hotel. actually Maud Adams as mm -hmm. well? It's not a body yeah. double? Oh, wow. Okay. No, so, is um, it? Really? I feel like I feel like I've seen things similar in other films. Um in From Russia with Love, I think it was a body double. She's yeah, it's going a body across. Double. Yeah, and, and she may be like wearing a body stocking or something. But it's also in silhouette, right? <laughs> right, right. Well <laughs> okay. so it, Is it, it the first time for the main Bond girl yeah. to be Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. got it. Okay. Um the other one is like right up my street. 
is how obscure this is. <laughs> is that in, the, in the pre-title sequence, Bond uses tries to plant explosives, right? In that little radar plane thing, spy mm-hmm. plane. If you look closely, there's an expiry date on those explosives, and it's March 10th, <laughs> 1983. So <laughs> those explosives would have expired by the point of this mission. <laughs> oh, so Bond would have had to find probably another way to blow it up anyway. So. <laughs> well, also one more thing I think I've read is that you know at the you know pre-credit sequence Bond is impersonating Colonel Toro, mm. and the guy who plays the real Colonel Toro had been like a stunt double of his on the Saints right. or something like that. Yeah. yeah, that's absolutely right. So it yeah. explains why they look so similar. Mm, right. No, one, no wonder Bond could pass for Colonel Toro. Yeah. But it's just one more thing I love about that pre-title sequence where uh, Bond has to um, innovate on his feet quite a lot yes. and still gets it done. Um, yeah. I, that pre-title, if you think about it, really does have so many elements of Bond sort of rolled up into one short, very again, like I, it's like a very short, self-contained film onto itself, and it really has mm. so many Bond elements. It's crazy. Is it the only one that is truly completely disconnected from the main film that that, that follows because i think even in goldfinger like it, it does get a mention like bond is in you know miami chilling out because of the exertion of that title <laughs> he, sequence is this the only one where it's like no connection no mention at all well and bond's context says you know there's a flight leaving for miami in an hour mm. Um, mm. so that's a tie and then also uh. thunderball there's a tie because the whole reason he's in Shrublands is because he had that injury from uh, Colonel Boutier hitting mm. him with the poker. Yeah. Because um, those I'm are sure. the ones that people often point to as completely yeah. disconnected. But as you say, Bill, it's like yeah. there are those little connections there. Yeah. The only, uh, the only other one that comes to mind. Uh, there you go. Are you yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, nope. that that doesn't have any ties. Yes, but, it, but of course he walks past Tracy's grave in the beginning. So does that yeah. count as a tie to the series, mm. but not the film? Yes, mm. it, it it it's a tie to what happened before, but not to what's coming. Mm. Mm. But yeah, anyway. But but this one is definitely a, the self-contained thing. Like you you could watch it. You you know what you could miss it. You could miss the main titles if you as long as you watch the movie from the <laughs> end of the main titles onwards. You're Caught up as much as anyone else is. Yeah. I feel like I want to throw Moonraker into that mix because, I mean, the obvious connection to the larger film is Jaws. But right. if you think about it, if that was anyone else, it has nothing to do with the story that's coming. It's just kind of. Well, but it does, though, because, you know, Drax you know, like needed to steal the Moonraker because because he had one that like malfunctioned or whatever. So, oh yeah, that's in the pre-tales too, isn't it? It's yeah. not just oh, that's okay. That's fair. Shoot, very true. Yeah, I mean, Bond, I mean, Bond does mention his money penny too, doesn't he? he? Goes, I just fell out of a plane without a parachute. But that's yeah. the kind of thing you'd expect Bond to say anyway, right? So, it's yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think story-wise, I mean, honestly, story-wise, I feel like the whole the interact the, the whole plane parachute thing with Jaws, I feel like is more. If you think about it, it's probably just a carryover from the movie before. As opposed right. to being mm. connected to the story ahead, at least as far as Jaws is concerned. Mm. Yeah. Okie dokie. So, um, time for final verdicts. Um, there are no bad Bond films, right? But there are ones we watch more than others. <laughs> so, would you put Octopussy in your top tier, middle tier, or bottom tier, and why? I'll go. Uh, it's solid middle tier, maybe even upper middle tier. 
Um, it's a little uneven in places for me. You know, there are some sequences I like better than others, but overall, I, I, I think it's great. So, you know, very solid middle tier. Is that kind of like a B plus? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> It's probably, I mean, my, my top tier is so stuffed full of uh, Bond films that I love. It, it It is certainly either at the top of the middle tier or the bottom of the top tier. Yeah, that's right. Um, like, honestly, I'd be struggling on, on a different day. You can ask me what my favorite Roger Moore Bond film is, and it could either be this, Spy Who Loved Me, or Moonraker. Like, these three I just absolutely adore. And it is probably, along with Tomorrow Never Dies, the Bond film that I've seen the most. It is just one of mm. my pure enjoyment. Like this is like if I've got a sick day, this is the one that's going on. If I just need to just <laughs> wallow on the sofa, sneezing and coughing, and just watch a bit of escapist entertainment, it's either this or Tomorrow Never Dies. That's interesting. I would. I know it's not possible, but I would love to know personally how many times I've watched each film. Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know there's some outliers. Like I think I've watched Die Another Day about 50 times because we did so much work <laughs> covering that film that, regardless of the quality of it, it had to be that many times. But um, mm. yeah, that's interesting. Um, Joe, all right. So we've got two two middles. Um, what do you think? <laughs> uh, definitely an upper tier for me. Hey. Um, to the point where I would, you know. It's it's one that I will pretty much just completely gush over um, without hesitation. It, it, it's funny, and again, we've said it many times that your first Bond film sometimes will very much set the stage for how you view Bond. You know, your entrance into James Bond. I remember seeing this one, and most of the jokes that people kind of wince at these days. <laughs> kind of went right over my head. There was a lot of things that he said that I just kind of missed out on. I th I, I think he, when I was younger, and again, I'm talking about 13 years old, I, I thought the Tarzan yell was like, oh, that's how Bond's distracting them from something else. And I'm sure that's, that's going <laughs> to, like, I, I just, I you know, again, not realizing these are just corny jokes. Uh, so, yeah, I, I really do to this day feel that this is a wildly underrated, underappreciated Bond film. Um, by the majority, it, it really does incorporate so many elements of Bond, executes them so perfectly. Um, you know, the fact that he's, I, I think you see Roger in more disguises in this one than any mm -hmm. other. Uh, he's, he's literally, he's definitely going undercover more than any, any before. Um, so many just little moments of perfection in this one that it just, just works so well for me. Um, again, all the all the Bond women are firing on all cylinders. The Bond villains, I, each with its with his own motivation. Honestly, I I find that this one just works. Like I I would almost call it flawless, except for a couple. Again, a couple of those little jokes that that the right. producers think are going to just crack people up on opening night, and then yeah. over time, it's like wish wish they took that out. <laughs> uh, so yeah, but otherwise, honestly, I think this is this is a near flawless Bond film. So definitely upper tier for me. Well, and if I can just repeat something I said earlier. Um, so when Roger Moore came on board with this, now obviously he's well paid. He'd done five before, but you know, but knowing he would be up against Sean Connery, he, the guy had to feel some pressure, but he never shows it. And 
So in some ways, I think it's actually one of his better performances, mostly because of all this outside stuff that was going on. Mm. I forgot what I was going to say now. I, I think, you know, I, I think the, um, the fact that it was going up against never say never again is probably one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of this film. Cause I, I think that they probably really pulled out the stops and, you know, really kind of went for it because they knew again, they're going up against Connery doing a rival bond film. They need to make this one great. So I think it forced them, you know, the, um, yeah. creativity by adversity. I, I think it really pushed them to elevate and do as much with this film as they possibly could. I will say that if there's one thing that I don't think is perfect, I probably should have thrown that one out before. I think the Barry score is not one of my favorites. Mm. It's not, not that Barry is not doing, you know, exactly what Barry does. I think he's trying to do a score that fits this situation, fits the locations, et cetera. Um, but it's, it's not a great score. So I, I kind of wonder if maybe, he, if he if he played it a little bit differently, would more people respond to the film? Mm. I've always thought for those that are octopusy detractors, and as you say, Joe, these are usually like armchair drive-by list generators yeah. on BuzzFeed. Um, that I reckon I could take about twenty seconds out of this film, and it would remove a lot of those criticisms. Mm. Maybe even fifteen seconds. Like mm. there's just these tiny little bits in it, which people latch onto unfairly, I think. And to your point about yes. opening night gags, it's like, yeah, they should have an opening night cut. Um, and then they should have a, um, <laughs> they really should. They really they should. should have a the version that's going to stay with us for infinity and beyond. Yes. Right. <laughs> yep. Well, and, and very specifically that Tarzan yell, that was because MGM had acquired United artists. Right. So at that point, the MGM film library was complete and whole. And so they could use it and didn't have to worry about rights issues. Just and because you can. Because you can. Doesn't mean you should. <laughs> because if you read the script, there's kind of an illusion, but it doesn't say it's a Tarzan yell. It, he says he's swinging like Tarzan or something like that in the stage directions. But somebody obviously got some yeah. ideas. <laughs> it, it right, right. It's right up there with the slide whistle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much, gents. Um, if you're listening to this when this episode goes out, Octopussy is back in UK cinemas. And it's not one that often gets put back on the big screen outside the Prince Charles Theatre. Um, when people do Bond marathons on the big screen over the years, Octopussy is one of those that doesn't quite make it a lot of the time. So take this opportunity, if you can, if you're in the UK, to go see it, because um, it might be your last um and next week we'll be. <laughs> I don't mean that. I don't mean that you're not going to live much longer. I mean, like it probably won't be put back on the screen anytime soon. That was dark, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> all right. So <clears throat> next week uh, we are heading into uh, one of my personal favorites to talk about: A View to a Kill. It's going to be great. And we'll see you then. Take care. Bye, everybody. See you. Take care.